0: Morning. I want to start this morning by inviting you to do an exercise, okay? And it's an exercise where I'm going to invite you to think about some things from your past. And so whether that involves for you kind of best closing your eyes or whether that just sort of involves sort of getting in a relaxed posture, whatever it is, I want you to sort of be able to go inward for a few moments, okay? And I want you to stop and think. And I want you to think about one or two or three very specific moments. Um, about a time in your life where making a first impression was a really big deal. Where making a first impression was a really big deal. Maybe it was when you are writing an application for college that you really wanted to go to, and so you're thinking, how is the admissions committee gonna see this, and how do I write this to present myself in a certain way? Maybe it was when you're writing a cover letter for a job. Maybe it was when you were going on a blind date with somebody that had been built up in your mind in some kind of ways through friends, and you're trying to think about what do I wear, and how does this work, and how do I want them to see me, and all this other kind of stuff. Maybe it was through uh, meeting Uh, some friends of, of folks or a club or an organization you wanted to be a part of, but just that moment where you're like, I want to be more deliberate than I normally am at how people are going to see me and interact with me. When making a first impression was a really big deal, we know from science that those are really important moments. We make a lot of assumptions about people, many of them subconscious, in the first few seconds of interacting with them. What was that moment for you? When you think back on it, how did you feel? Did you feel nervous? Did you feel excited? Did you feel confident? What, were that, what was that like in those moments for you? Maybe you felt all of those things at different times. And what was it that you wanted to give an impression of? Like, what did you want to put forward? What did you want them to notice about you? What did you want them to think? What kind of parts of you were you hoping that they would pay attention to? And then what were the things you hoped they didn't notice or didn't think or you didn't want to have happen? We all have moments like this. They're important moments in our lives. For me, one of those moments was the first time I met my future in-laws, John and Wendy McMullen. As many of you know, Beth and I have a sort of different story. I'm from the States. She is from Wales. We met in Japan, where we taught English for two years. Um, But that meant because this was like, this was in the dark ages, like before Skype and before FaceTime and everything else. When you lived in Japan, you were pretty much cut off uh, in a lot of ways from your uh, normal life where you'd grown up in either the States or, in her case, the UK. And so we lived there for the first year. We met during our first year there and we got engaged without ever having met one another's families. Now for us, that was just the decision before us and it felt like the right thing and the faithful thing, but is different, right? And so we decided because we're people of great wisdom and insight that before the wedding day, we might wanna interact with one another's you know, like parents and siblings and stuff. And so we looked for dates where that was possible. And so for kind of the Japanese school year equivalent of spring break, we had a week off. And so Beth and I decided we are gonna fly to the UK uh, and I'm gonna meet her family. Now, I just turned 24. And I was like, as you all can imagine, completely like a super cool frat boy. Uh, And so I dressed like that for the trip. Right? Meaning that because we had to do this, we had to fly from Osaka in Japan to Hong Kong. We had like a six-hour layover in the airport in Hong Kong, which is an awesome experience when you're traveling internationally to have a long layover. And then we flew from Hong Kong to London's Heathrow Airport. I'd never been to the UK before, and best parents were gonna meet us at Heathrow. And so I dressed like I normally dressed, right? Like I wore hiking boots, I had old blue jeans on, I had a baggy shirt on, and I wore a baseball cap. It's the same baseball cap I wore every year. It was a University of Virginia baseball cap, why did I wear it? I didn't go to University of Virginia. I don't know. Except that it was super cool, and it was held together in one place by duct tape that I had like (laughs) replenished over the years. You know that you wish you had a hat like that. And so I wore it, right? And Beth's like, are you going to wear the hat? And I'm like, yeah, I'm me. Right? I'm going to wear the hat. And so we, uh, we fly, and we're like landing in London, and we get, go through customs, and I'm excited. And, uh, and right before we go out of the luggage door with our luggage, Beth's like, I'm going to go to the restroom. I haven't seen my parents in like nine months. I'm just going to brush my teeth. And, and she goes, you know, you might want to do the same. I'm like, no, nah, do you really? And she's like, yeah, you might want to do the same. And so I go into the restroom, too. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and it begins to occur to me that my future in-laws might not be approaching that day in the same spirit in which I had approached it, which was of course we're all really excited for what's going on. Like It occurred to me in that moment that their version of events was that they had placed their oldest daughter on a plane to go teach into Japan, that she had contacted them saying that she had dating an American, that then she contacted them later to say that she was engaged to this American who had not in any way interacted with them or asked their blessing or their permission or anything else about asking their daughter to marry him, And then they were going to go, and after the wedding, he, that he was going to take her to go live in the United States on a different country and continent thousands of miles away from where they would ever live and we would be there for like the rest of our lives, including where their grandkids would live. And as I'm sitting in the mirror, it's like maybe the duct tape was a good thing to not have in that moment. Like this might not be the impression. So I did what any respectful 24 year old frat boy would do. I turned the hat (laughs) around. Because that signals formal at that point. I wash some, I splash some water on my face and I go walking out and I still remember going out with the luggage in Heathrow and Beth going up and giving her parents a hug. And I remember walking up to John, her father, and going, look him in the eye, shake his hand, show that you know, you're know you a responsible person besides the duct tape and everything else uh, and to, to, to Mary's daughter. And I stuck my hand out to shake his hand and I remember him ignoring my hand and giving me this huge embrace and this hug. I still remember that, it's it's, it's right 20 years ago that that happened, but I think about those moments because those first moments of impression set that relationship on a certain course. First impressions are a really big deal, and first impressions is what I would like you to have in mind for why this sermon series that we're launching into today is so unique. For the next 16 weeks, which is a longer time than we're normally in a series, we are going to work our way through the book of Romans so we've creatively entitled this series Win in Romans because it's catchy i'm told and so We are going to be going through it, and we chose 16 weeks because Romans is 16 chapters, and we are really highly intellectual people, and I was like, well, let's just take a chapter a week and go through it. So that's what we're going to do. So each Sunday, starting today, we're going to preach on uh, the chapter of that week. So today is Romans 1, a few verses from that chapter, and during the week, I just invite you to read the rest of the chapter, to read the whole thing, maybe read it a few times, just study it, just sit with it. Okay. Um, And so this week we're going to be doing chapter one and we'll take us through um, really through uh, the middle towards the end of August is how long this is going to take. And the reason we chose Romans is because Romans in the New Testament and all that Paul writes is a totally unique book. Paul wrote more of the New Testament, wrote more books of the New Testament than any other writer. He wrote uh, Galatians and Philippians and Colossians and uh, Philippians and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He wrote so many books in the New Testament. And all of those books worked a certain way. All of those books were letters that Paul wrote to churches in those cities. Okay, so for instance, the book of Philippians is written to the church in the city of Philippi. And each of those churches, Paul had gone to those cities, traveled to those cities, and had started churches there. He had founded, he was the church planter of those churches, and then when the church was established, he moved on to a new city. So these are writing back to churches that he had planted that knew him, that knew of his teaching, and the letters we have, like Philippians and Galatians, are, are writing back going, I've heard about this, and this is a good thing you're doing, or this might be something you want to think about differently, but there's an established relationship there and understanding of who Paul is. Romans is the letter that's different. Romans The church in Rome was not a church that Paul had founded. He had, in fact, never been there when he wrote this letter. And so Romans is the first impression those people have of him. And it's the first time he gets to present the gospel to them. And so he starts in the most basic building blocks of faith. If you are someone who's going, I don't know what I believe about this, or I don't know about this whole Christianity thing, or I'm just in a period of a lot of doubts, my hope is that Romans is a place that is a wondrous book, For you because Paul starts from the very beginning of going this is what we believe and this is why we believe it but over the course of these 16 chapters he's also going to give some of the most amazing theological descriptions of what following Jesus can look like some of the most intricate things we'll wrestle with and so for all of us no matter who we are or how long we've been seeking to pursue Jesus or even if we have been seeking to pursue Jesus this is meant to engage us in practical ways This is the first impression that Paul is able to give to these folks of who he is and what the gospel is about. Now, a few things we're going to bring up on the screen before we read um, from chapter one, just some background and some facts about the book of Romans uh, that's important for you to know. Uh, Number one, the book of Romans, we believe, was written in uh, the year either 56 or 57. It was while Paul was on his third missionary journey, and we believe it's while he was in the city of Corinth. So this is where First and Second Corinthians, after he left Corinth, he wrote back to the church there. He's, we believe he was in Corinth um, while he wrote Romans. He was planning on going to Rome, and so he's like, I'm going to write to this place uh, and tell them what I believe. So that's number one. Number two, it was a unique congregation and that it was composed of both Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity. Now, if you think about the original disciples who followed Jesus, most of the early Christians at the very very beginning were Jewish converts to Christianity, okay? One of the great controversies in the early church was, do non-Jewish people, how do they become Christians? Because they don't know who Isaiah is or Jeremiah is. They don't know how Jesus fulfills the prophets. What do they need to know before they can become a Christian? This was one of the first controversies in the church. But the church in Rome was already more diverse than that. We know that it already had both Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish, so Roman pagan religion, the people who had converted to Christianity. So it was a church of great diversity, even though it was probably small, less than 100 people. Um, it, it, It was a place of a lot of diversity in terms of background and makeup of people. And then the last thing is this. Eugene Peterson writes in his commentary, and it's really important, that most likely a majority were both slaves and illiterate. And this is important. And Eugene Peterson writes this in his commentary about Romans because he says that lots of times in the year 2018, Christians cop out of stuff. We read something and it's like we don't like it or we don't know what it means or we're not certain what it means. And we're like, well, I don't know. That's just not for me. I'm like, I'm not Paul. I'm not like a PhD in this stuff. And, I'm not. and Eugene Peterson says, this was not written from one PhD in an ivory tower to another PhD in an ivory tower. This was written by someone whose life had been changed by Jesus, and he was writing to a people, a majority of whom could not read, and a majority of whom were slaves, and saying, "This is practically what it looks like to follow Jesus." And so, if you have something in this, you're like, "I don't know what that means. I guess it's not for me." You know, you know, Jill or John probably understands it. Thomas doesn't, but Jill or John might understand it. Uh, and so, I guess that Eugene Peterson writes and says, "I won't want you to cop out on that." I want you to stay in this and wrestle with it because it's meant for people like Thomas, ordinary people, to try to wrestle with what following Jesus looks like, okay? So, this was the makeup of, of the congregation. All right. So, the passage that we're going to read today, and I'm going to say a prayer before we read it, is from Romans chapter 1, and we're going to take the opening seven verses for this week Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. But before we read it, let's pray. Lord, as we begin this, where Paul gives his first impression of the gospel and your call in our lives, may he and may your spirit speak to each and every one of us that's here in this place today. We pray that this would happen through the power of your spirit, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul. "...a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, the gospel gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, Paul could write long sentences. That is one sentence. And maybe the English teacher that's sitting out there with the right now has her hand trembling because she wants a red pen to go, uh, I think we could divide this up and make it easier, right? But this is the way that it was written at the time. And, 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 uh, and it was the way it was written scholarly at the time, how, how the original Greek was written. And one of the things I want you to see in these seven verses is this. If you're sitting there right now going, oh my gosh, 16 weeks going through the book of Romans feels really long, like we're going to really get into the weeds of this and see how it goes, Uh, what I want you to see is, uh, my bet is by the end of this series, there'll be a piece of you that'll be disappointed that we didn't engage so much of this letter. We could spend five weeks going through what Paul talks about here in these seven verses. So the hard part of this is what we're going to leave out and what we're not going to talk about, okay? This is densed up. Paul is an amazing writer. He is an amazing thinker, and he starts this letter in very deliberate ways with very deliberate words. This is the first impression that he will give to them of the gospel. Now, One of the things, and people who have been a part of Bible studies that I help lead have heard me say this a lot. Uh, One of the things that's important when you're studying the Scriptures is that rather than sort of getting overwhelmed by the whole, one of the things I encourage you to do is to start looking for different threads that run throughout the Scriptures. Paul's going to have certain threads, certain themes to Romans that he's going to come back to again and again. And it's not like throwing paint in a wall and seeing what sticks, although sometimes it might feel that way, but to start looking for these threads and seeing what he's trying to say over and over again. And in these seven verses, we're going to bring some of them up here, not for you to memorize them all today, but just to start seeing, because you're going to see these again and again in the weeks to come. But they start here from the beginning. He starts with them. Number one is this. He has a high Christology. And this is really important. He starts from the very beginning of this letter by saying we are anchored by the person of Jesus. We are not here um, uh, for any other reason than we have been called by Jesus. And it is he that we look to. He is our Lord. He is the one who guides us. Here we say at Covenant that we're encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. And that means certain things. It's Jesus who anchors us. That Christology, that high Christology is what holds us together. We're not sitting there just looking for really sweet, warm thoughts to just kind of make us feel better. And we're not here to like hammer at religious rules and doctrine in cold ways and make you memorize it and do it. That's not what Paul anchors us in. He doesn't anchor us in tradition. He doesn't anchor us in dogma. He doesn't anchor us in feelings. He anchors us in the person of Jesus. Our faith is not built on rules, it's built on following a person. It's based, therefore, the fabric of it becomes something that from its very inception is relational in meaning, not about memorization and doing. It's about a relationship with God, and Paul says that from the very beginning. That leads to the second thing, that salvation is an unmerited gift of grace, and this might be disappointing for some of you. God doesn't love you because you deserve it. God doesn't look at you and go, gosh, you're just so smart. You made the honor of society, and so we love you, and we think more of you than the person who didn't, and that's why that you're just kind of special in God's eyes. He didn't do it because you dress a certain way. He doesn't do it because you look a certain way. He doesn't do it because you're funny. He doesn't do it because you're not funny. He doesn't do it for any other reason than to say, you are my beloved, and I see you and love you through my grace. And friends, this is important because it allows us to deal in truth and reality. The truth is that whether we like to admit it or not, we are broken people living in a broken world. And the reason that we have worth and meaning is because God declares it even when we don't deserve it. Now, when we say that we're broken people living in a broken world, that doesn't mean that it's like, oh, we just have to flail ourselves, we are awful people. But what it means is that we are all individuals, if we're totally honest here, and the people who love us can be honest with us if we allow them to be, who one moment are capable of acts of great kindness, beauty, and love, and 28 seconds later we can be very self-centered, selfish people over usually really silly, petty things. And the, the two of those happen all the time. And there's nothing that you can do to like discipline your way out of it or think your way out of it. At our core, we are broken people and God looks at it and says, you have value not in pretending to be something more than you are. You are loved by God as you are. That you have meaning and worth today. And Paul says that from the beginning. We are saved by grace. That leads to number three, that we're all called as apostles. And this is good news, too, because it's not like God's going, you're broken, and I love you. God's saying, I love you, and I'm going to, therefore, give you a purpose in life. To be an apostle, which he uses twice in these seven verses, first for himself and then for all of us, means one who is sent. So what he says is, I love you, and I, therefore, send you out to live a life of purpose and meaning. You are put on this earth at this time in human history for a reason. God has a plan for your life. And that's what C.S. Lewis defines as living with joy. Is seeking purpose in our life each and every day. And God says, "I send you out to impact this world wherever you live, work, and play." Number 4. Alls and Jews and Gentiles are equally welcome. We see this in verse 5, and this is important. There is no prerequisites to get to God. Jesus welcomes everybody. All are welcome to come into his presence. All are equal at the foot of the cross. We live in a society that talks about equality all the time. We don't mean it. What we mean is we want to be equal with people who think like us. But we see ourselves as different from or above than people who not quite, don't quite get it. The only place equality will ever be found in this world is at the foot of the cross. It is there that we acknowledge our need and it is there that we are equally saved. It is there that we are equally given value. It is there that equality can be found. It is only at the foot of the cross. And so what that means is all people, all backgrounds, all are welcome to come into the presence of God and into community. And last, and this is is where we're gonna end today, but we're gonna see this over and over again. There's what I would call therefore a system of a, of a flat hierarchy. Okay? One of the frustrations people express in our culture today is that there are a lot of people who feel like their voice doesn't matter and their voice isn't heard by people in power. People who feel like about that about politics or about society, that their voice doesn't matter in the big scheme of things and that is dispiriting. Well, that was certainly more true in Jewish society at the time and in Roman society at the time. It was very hierarchical. There was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was the Sanhedrin in Jewish culture, and what they said became your life. If you weren't anywhere on that totem pole, what the people at the top said, that was true for you. Roman society worked the way. There's the Caesar, there's the emperor. What the Caesar says is true, that is now true for everybody. Whether you believe it or not is inconsequential because you are in the wrong place on the totem pole. was a very hierarchical system and what Paul is expressing here is saying that the church and Christianity works in a completely different way. What he says is and it's found in the pronouns if you go back and read these seven verses he starts in verse one by saying I Paul who am saved by grace and am an apostle but in verses five and six the pronouns change to now being we. He said we are saved by grace and we are sent as apostles. So what Paul's doing here, and this is really important we see, is that he's not saying at the beginning, I, Paul, should be listened to because I'm a super smart guy that I'm telling you the rules of faith. What he's saying is is that what God has done for me, God has also done for you. And so we are a community where we are kind of co-teachers and co-learners in each other's life because God has something unique to say through each of us. You see what I mean by a flatter hierarchical structure in that? So we're going to end with this because I know that this is a lot and it's again we're trying to set up the 16 weeks and to see these threads but if you're kind of feeling overwhelmed by this and going okay I feel like I'm drinking out of a fire hose and I don't know what I'm supposed to like take in this I'd like to suggest that we end today where Paul begins. I'd like to suggest we end today by thinking about all of this all of these five things where Paul begins in his opening words where his first impression that he gives to the Christians there is I Paul a servant Of Jesus Christ. I believe that so much of what we were just talked about can be encapsulated in this idea of what he starts with before anything else. Not I, Paul, who's so smart. Not I, Paul, who you should listen to. Not I, Paul, who's founded all these churches and therefore has a resume that allows me to write this letter. It's I, Paul, first thing, first impression, first two seconds as he walks in the door. I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. What's true for him is true for us first thing to be said. Now, I might not be the only one here, but the word servant is probably not the first thing I'm drawn to in life. If someone says, Thomas, what are your chief ambitions for life? Servant. Like, I feel like I should think that, but I probably not, right? Or if you were asked, like, what are the top goals for your children or your grandchildren? Being a servant might not be the first thing. We're more drawn to words like leadership or creativity or taking initiative or all of these kinds of things. But the word Paul starts with is servant. And that might be something that we need to consider what it means for our primary identity. And even though we're not drawn to it, I want to put forward to you today that Paul is unpacking something in this word and in this term that even though we might not feel it, being a servant is actually where we come most alive. And I want to try to prove it to you in this way. I want to take you back as we end to where we began this journey, to when you were seeking to make a first impression. I want you to think back on that moment again. And I want you to ask yourself, why was making a first impression in the way that you wanted to such a big deal? And yes, there's probably a lot of reasons. Maybe you were kind of being self-centered and maybe you wanted to get yourself ahead. And maybe That's all true. And, but I bet it wasn't only that. I bet the reason you wanted to create a good first impression is because you also wanted to be included in something that was bigger than yourself. I wanna be a part of this school because of what it represents and where it can help me to go and me staying in my little orbit where I'm the king of the universe is not gonna get me to the place I wanna go. I wanna be a part of that because it makes me a part of something larger than just me. I would like to work in this job because it gives me the opportunity to do things and to step forward in things that allows life to be a part of more than just about me. I wanna be a part of this community or this church or this relationship because if I just sit on my own living in the peanut gallery of life, offering suggestions about on Facebook about how people should live and think and vote, I impact nothing. Yes, I wanted John and Wendy McMullen in the airport in Heathrow to like me and yes, duct tape on a baseball cap was probably not the way to go. But I also wanted them to see something else. I wanted them to see that I had fallen in love with their daughter, and that I wanted to marry her, and therefore to be a part of a relationship that was bigger than just me. That I was better off not being the centerpiece of the universe in that way anymore. I wanted to be a part of something bigger. I wanted to serve a story that was bigger, not because of rules or expectations, but because of where life is found. Paul isn't starting this letter, and we're not meant to let, saying in this this kind of, the small way of going, you know, I'm just a servant, that's what I'm here. It's not false humility, it is a declaration of where he has found purpose and we live these compartmentalized lives where in church we talk about faith but at work we work a different way and in raising our kids we think a different way and in being at concerts we think of a different way and getting together with our friends we think of a different way and Paul is trying to rescue us from a compartmentalized siloed life where we live in one way in one situation and another way in another situation he's saying that there is a common identity that gives meaning in everywhere you go to live First and foremost, not as a husband or as a friend or as a wife or as a daughter, not as an employee, not as a manager, not as a leader, but to begin in all situations as a servant of Jesus Christ, to live as part of a story that is bigger than you. And so as we began by thinking backwards, we close by thinking forwards. What are you planning on doing the rest of this day? What are you planning on doing the rest of this week? And if you're not careful, your default is to live by one set of rules in one place and another set of rules somewhere else. One language one place and another language a different place. And what Paul's saying is what would it mean to move into this week saying, I go as a servant of Jesus Christ? Asking that question is where we begin. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, lead us, and guide us. We pray. Seeking to serve the one true king in whose image we are made and who we love. We pray for your guidance to live. In Jesus' name, amen.